the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Does your family have any skeletons in the closet? I have five brothers, four sisters. Trust me, we have doors that we do not open in our family. (laughs) In fact, when I had just finished first grade, my dad and mom were talking. Well, they told us this later. Turns out dad was very disturbed by the bad influence his family was having on my older brothers and sister. His family was a wreck. His mom was a vibrant Christian, but she died quite young. Uh, Back then, you know, if you were an American, you were a Christian. You know how it was. And it wasn't actually true, but people lived like it. And so my grandmother, whom I never met, married a nice young man who did not become a believer until my dad led him to Christ at the ripe old age of 82. Cutting it a little close, but okay. Dad was introduced to Christ by a guy he met in the army when he was but 19. Interestingly, the guy's name was Douglas Warren Henderson. My dad's name was Warren Henderson. My oldest brother is named Douglas Warren Henderson. But all my uncles and aunts on my dad's side are actually one aunt, except the youngest. They were alcoholics. They were womanizers. They were smokers. They spent time in prison, all but one of them, I think, even including my aunt. It was, they were a wreck, okay? So mom and dad were talking and he said, we have got to move away from here. And mom says, oh, I agree. I've always wanted to move to the coast, Oregon or Washington, you know. Dad, whose World War II injuries drove him out of the occupation he loved, was working as a mechanics helper at a local shop. They were barely scraping by. Which might help to explain why my mom was so surprised to see him drive home on Friday night with a big truck. Whose truck? What do you mean? It's ours. Where's the car? It's gone. I traded it in for the truck. (laughs) What? Why? Well, we can't move all our stuff and all eight kids in the car. Move to the coast. The coast? (laughs) I think I've settled on Oregon, he says. (laughs) You mean now? Like right now? Well, yeah, we talked about this. Yeah, but I didn't know you meant instantly. Turns out Dad had quit his job, (laughs) cashed out all their meager savings and sold everything that he could. Tools, everything. He'd even talked to some friends and told them about their decision (laughs) to move. And the friends were going to join us on our mammoth cross-country drive. Remember, there was no interstate highway system then. Some of the roads they traveled were gravel roads to get out. I mean, there was no such thing as gas stations (laughs) every few miles. They didn't have that kind of thing. There used to be signs that said, warning, no services for 175 miles. That that was normal then. There was no way to know how much gas you were going to use, whether or not it was available, how much it would cost. You didn't know any of that stuff. Well, that last one, that turned out to be pretty important because we actually ran out of gas in the truck uh, in the mountains above the Lucky Creek Dam, which is about 10 miles out of Boise, only we were about another 15. And we coasted all the way down the mountain, clear past Lucky Peak Dam, until we rolled into the, the Lucky Peak State Campground at the bottom of the hill, and Dad coasted the truck right into a parking spot and stopped it right there for camping. And then the guy came over, the ranger, he found out we don't have gas, and by the way, no money either. 
So he decides that rather than try and charge us a fee, which we didn't have anyway, that he'd just kind of let us stay put while Dad biked into Boise to look for a job, which he did successfully the very next day. He had a job the next day. And us kids, glorious fun. I'm, the whole summer long, we camping, roaming the hills, swimming in the river. It was absolutely great. You know, I loved it. Can't tell you what my mom thought of it, but I loved it. <laughs> All of that just to escape the skeletons in my dad's family's closet. <laughs> the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Have you ever wondered what kind of family tree Jesus must have had? Oh, they must have been wonderful people, right? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> now, it's important to understand that Matthew wrote his good news mostly for the Jewish people who believed or were considering believing in Jesus. He wanted them to know Jesus as king. That's the important thing to Jews. Jesus needed to be king of the Jews and king of everything. So he starts his story with a Middle Eastern story form known as the genealogy. Now, unlike modern Western genealogies, which are pretty dry reading, <laughs> these were designed to tell a story as well as, of course, to satisfy the requirements of kingship that Jesus be a descendant of King David. Uh, Matthew lists most of them in uh, using a nice round number, 40. But he also lists four women before he gets to the end. Uh, there are a lot of stories in this genealogy, but I want to I chase a story about these women. Why are these women in the midst of the Christmas story? Forty men and four women before Mary and Joseph. From what kind of human family did Jesus come? Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and then Judah and his brothers. Judah and Tamar. Are you familiar with that beautiful story of Joseph in the Bible? Well, it turns out. First, his own brothers, including Judah, sold him into slavery. Against all odds, in setback after setback, he proves to be faithful to God. He retains his honor even when his boss's wife tries to seduce him being stung by rejection, she then claims he was trying to assault her. Back to prison again. <laughs> uh, but even through this and after much more, he stays true to God. In fact, there is not a single negative thing said about him in Scripture. And he ends up being prime minister of the entire country, a country which is the world power at the time. Tamar's story happens in the midst of all this. Wouldn't it be great if she was part of Joseph's story? But she's not. In fact, her story is in the Bible to show the dramatic contrast between the righteousness of Joseph and the degradation of his brothers. But also to show you just how far God will go to rescue people. Tamar is not Judah's wife. She's his daughter-in-law. The story starts with Judah getting Tamar as a wife for his first son. That's how things were done back then. But the Bible tells us that this son was desperately wicked and the Lord kills him. According to the custom of the times and later enshrined in God's law for Israel, the brother of a man who dies must marry that man's widow and produce offspring that will not be his own, but rather his brother's. 
among other things that ensured that the widow was provided for is she had control of the dead man's wealth until she bore a son and her husband didn't. Until the son was grown, in which case he was required to care for his mom and then he got control of the money. So that guy gets left out. And even the name of the son would be that of his dead father's. So Judah's second son practices a crude form of birth control specifically because he doesn't want to have offspring for his brother. Obviously he's selfish and also the Bible says wicked as well as his older brother was so the Lord kills him too. Now Judah decides not to follow the law and withholds his third son because he's afraid that he'll die as well. He tells her, oh, he's just too young now. You wait and I'll bring him to you once he's grown up. Of course, Tamar finds out Judah is lying and she takes a desperate, risky, and deeply immoral chance. Now remember though, she's a widow with no inheritance or guarantee of care when old. And she's back in her own father's house, a terribly dishonorable thing then. And it may be that her father is pushing her into action. So what happens? Now, remember, this is Jesus' family. We're talking about the family of Jesus, right? (laughs) What happens is that Tamar tricks Judah, her father-in-law, into thinking she is a cultic prostitute. They wore thick veils so you couldn't actually see her face. Incredibly, Judah, now a widower himself, falls right into the trap. The result of this incest is that she conceives by him. And you thought your family was bad. (laughs) But it gets even worse. That hypocrite Judah is told his daughter-in-law, supposedly waiting for his last son, is pregnant and, according to the law, he is to determine her fate. So he immediately plans to have her killed by burning her at the stake. But she's a little too tricky for him. (laughs) When he decided to hire her for his own wickedness, he agreed to give her some livestock. But she made him give her some personal effects as a deposit. And as soon as he left to get the promised payment so he could get his stuff back, she took off with the valuables. Judah, not surprising for such a weak-willed little weasel, decides to cover it up. He's pretending he's just an innocent bystander. So when they tell him she's pregnant, he says, well, we have to follow God's law which reserved burning as a punishment only for daughters of priests who become prostitutes and those guilty of incest, the woman and the man. They haul her out to burn her and she pulls his stuff out and says, "Uh, can anybody tell me who these are? (laughs) And there is some good news. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. Since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. She has twins. The second and most famous was Perez. We said that genealogies were used to tell a story. Usually genealogies start with the most important person. Now for Jews, that was either Abraham, Jacob, or one of his sons, Judah, for instance. But hundreds of years later, another Jewish boy is born and the writer started his genealogy this way. Now these are the generations of Perez. Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered David. Not the generations of Judah, but his son, Perez. Well, that was the fourth man in the genealogy. Let's look at 
the woman who married the ninth, Rahab. Her story starts at the beginning of the national age when Israel, being led by Joshua, goes into the promised land. But first, Joshua sends two men to spy out Jericho. God brought them to, of all places, a prostitute's house. (laughs) Amazingly, she hid them when somebody reported that they had seen them there. Why? Because this prostitute recognizes the true God. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came up out of Egypt. And when you, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She recognizes that there is a creator of all things and that the creator is the God of Israel. She gets it. So she makes a pact with his chosen people. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother and brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. They agree and tell her how to mark her house so the Israelite soldiers will not kill them in the heat of the battle. In due time, the battle is engaged, so the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Her faith in the living Creator God was very great. So great that nearly 1,500 years later, one of the men God used to write the Bible penned these words, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Because of the genealogy of Matthew, we know that this woman, by the grace of God, left her past life and was an ancestor of Jesus. The family into which Rahab married eventually settled into a little town they named Bethlehem. The house of bread, it means, which we say bread basket for our Kansas and places like that where we grow grain. Eventually, a son is born and he becomes an integral part of the life of the next woman Matthew mentions, Ruth, a foreign woman, in fact, a lowly Moabite. Her story takes place in the time of the judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Just as the wickedness of Judah and all his brothers is contrasted with that of Joseph, so here we find the goodness of Ruth and Boaz opposing the the horrible wickedness all around them. And note, everything recorded that Ruth did was honorable. Nothing bad is said about her or Boaz anywhere in the Scriptures. But she was, as we said, a foreigner, a Moabite. Talk about skeletons in your family closet. Moab was the son of Lot and his daughter. Yuck. It may not surprise you to find that the whole group of them had a reputation for terrible immorality. And even though Lot was Abraham's nephew, the people of Moab, his son, became bitter enemies of the Israelites. In spite of that, we find an Israelite woman named Naomi whose husband moves her and her sons to Moab during a famine. The sons marry Moabite women. Keeping the story short, the husband and then both sons die. Naomi has no support in Moab. No way to live. 
And she determines to return to Bethlehem. She's heard that the famine is over. She tries to talk both her daughters-in-law into staying in Moab. Not like she can care for them or get them another husband. And the journey is fraught with danger. Think of the times. But in an amazing demonstration of faith and love, one will not abandon her. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more. Also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth had amazing trust in Naomi. And she learned to trust in the true God because she knew and trusted Naomi. Are we so trustworthy that people can see God in us? Hmm. Well, they still have no one to support them, but God providentially arranges for Ruth to glean in the fields of our man Boaz. It's a great story and you should read it all, but for now we'll just say that Boaz takes note of Ruth and helps her. Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. There's this whole kinsman-redeemer thing. you got to read the story going on, but it ends with Boaz redeeming Ruth and thus Naomi. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Boaz and Rahab before him acted honorably, as opposed to Judah and Tamar. But after some time, Boaz and Ruth have a son. And the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. The new play on words here, Ruth's son, Naomi's grandson, is the Redeemer now. Obviously, Ruth's worth is praised in the highest way those people knew how to praise. That's it. They can't give her better praise. And, as a fun side note, there are four more genealogies in the Bible that cover these times and people. In spite of Boaz's willingness to allow his name to fade into oblivion, the name God chose to put in all four is Boaz. Ruth was born into a despicable family, but she left it all behind to follow Naomi and the true God. Just a few generations later, Matthew presents the fourth part of his tale, but we don't hear this woman's name from Matthew. <laughs> Only that part of the story which stings most acutely. She is the wife of Uriah. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Let us start this story with a story. And remember as we read it that David was, when he was young, a shepherd who valiantly defended his sheep. 
And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. The very next words the prophet Nathan says to David after his indignant outburst is, You are the man. You see, David had an affair with Bathsheba. Bathsheba's father and husband Uriah were both members of David's 37 mighty men. Men with whom he had bled. Men with whom he had promised mutual undying loyalty. And he has an affair with the wife of one and the daughter of another. I mean, how low can you get? Not long after this terrible betrayal, Bathsheba sends David a note saying she's pregnant. He certainly doesn't want anyone to know what he's been doing while his men are out fighting a war. So he calls her husband back from the battlefront figuring he'd take the opportunity to uh, enjoy his wife's company, thereby assuring everyone, including Uriah, that everyone, including Uriah, would think the child was his rather than David's. But Uriah took his oaths and friendships more seriously than David and would not enjoy the pleasure of his wife's company when the other men were at battle. David even got him drunk, hoping that he'd succumb. But not this good man. In the worst political cover-up you'll ever hear, David had his general Job arrange a battle so that they would lose it and had him place Uriah at the front to ensure he would die. Now David pretends he's a good guy taking care of his man's widow by marrying her. But God is not blind and he sends Nathan to rebuke David. Incredibly, David repents in tears. I mean, can you imagine a man so callous he would have his good friend killed just to cover up his sin and yet God could reach even that hard heart? Sin has consequences. The Lord causes the child to die. David's family suffers from now on. In fact, he sees four of his own sons die before him. But God is still faithful. Jesus is born in the city of David. Blind Bartimaeus will cry out, Jesus, son of David. Matthew wrote, Jesus Christ, the son of David. And Solomon, the second son of David and Bathsheba, joins the line of Jesus' ancestors. All right, what are, what are we supposed to think about these four women and their stories? Imagine Mary. It's Christmas time. Imagine Mary, the last woman Matthew mentions. What is she thinking when the angel tells her she will bear a son and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David? <laughs> oh. Tamar, who commits incest, is seen to be more righteous than Judah. 
And she and Judah never commit that sin again. Did you catch that? They never do that again. Rahab turns from prostitution to belief, marrying a true believer in the Creator, the Lord God. Ruth, the Moabite, leaves her past behind, her family, her religion, her home, her safety, and clings to the true God. Bathsheba, an adulterer in tears, sees her second son Solomon on the throne. Perhaps we must leave our past and that of our parents and grandparents behind to be righteous, to turn to belief, to cling to the true God. And then we will see him as king of kings. Rahab learned of God by seeing his work in the Israelites. Ruth was faithful in horrible circumstances, but it was those very circumstances that made possible her bright future. Bathsheba failed miserably, but in spite of her sin, God worked his plan and the wisest king ever, save Christ himself, was born to her. In fact, many believe, I agree, that the mother of Proverbs' last chapter, chapter 31, that's Bathsheba. Ruth was outside, not a part of God's people at all, but God brought her in. Bathsheba, unfaithful to her husband and father as much as David was, nevertheless became the legitimate wife of Israel's greatest king and mother of its wisest. Greatest and wisest till Jesus came to show what real greatness and wisdom was. God used circumstances that often looked very dark to bring about his plan. No matter how dark our lives look, let us have patience and wait for him. Let's not forget that Jesus was the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root and the offspring of David, and that Boaz, the wife of Salmon and Rahab, is the Old Testament example of the redemption Christ worked in us. So where's Jesus in each of these stories? At every stage in Israel's life, God ensured his plan was carried out. Should we not trust that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. Hamar, the abandoned one, was the matron of the family that would bring Jesus, who will never leave us or forsake us, into the world. Rahab, the sinner, became a part of the nation and lineage that would bring Jesus, who would save us all out of our sins. Ruth, the faithful one, was redeemed by Boaz and through her the line that would bring us Jesus, our Redeemer, continued. Bathsheba was bathed in forgiveness and became a part of God's plan for redemption and reconciliation. We are the body of Christ and are His plan for redemption and reconciliation for the world. Some life lessons from Tamar. Do not judge children by their parents (laughs) or vice versa. Do not limit yourself because of your parents. Because of Rahab, we should not see a sinner as only a sinner. (laughs) We should not see ourselves as only sinners. In the story of Ruth, both Ruth and Boaz were faithful in the midst of wickedness. 
today, especially today, let us be faithful even with wickedness all around us. And the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba continues the line that would bring Jesus, the righteous king, into the world. Who will we raise up? Our own children? Other people? Who will we raise up to bring people to Jesus? Not ourselves bring them, but who will we help to learn to bring people to Jesus? God provides Solomon in a legally and morally proper manner. Both legally and morally, Solomon was was produced in a proper manner. And I wonder, was Uriah, her husband, was he shortly going to die, say, in a real battle anyway? If so, David could have in real compassion married Bathsheba. Was God planning to give them to each other anyway? Shouldn't we wait for God's plan to unfold? Love is patient rather than forcing things our way. We are beneficiaries of a very long conversation. They like to call it in seminary, a long conversation that God has with believers. Listen to one part David had with him. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken spirit and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The Scriptures tell us that David was a man after God's own heart. He sought to do God's will. It's actually a Scripture that says, in all things David sought to do God's will, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. But for David to do God's will, especially after that, it was only possible when his proud, sin-filled spirit was broken and his heart humbled and ready to seek the will of God once again. Some 30 generations after David, the true light shined. The Son of God was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And some 30 years later, he who was without sin became sin for us and died in our place. We celebrate Christmas because we know that Jesus, the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, came into this world to die, to redeem us from our sins. If we, like David, have hearts seeking God, 
we can leave our past behind like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and even the wife of Uriah. We don't have to run from our past, our families, our homes. We can give them to the only one who is able to redeem us. If we are willing to leave everything to follow Him, the Creator of all things who became a creature, a tiny babe gently caressed by a young Middle Eastern woman, a woman barely more than a girl who certainly thought deeply of four other women, shadows of her past, skeletons of Christmas past, who would be redeemed by the perfect one nestled in her arms. Father, your plan in redemption (laughs) does not look like one we would write. Who would write these people into their story? Not just write them in. They're an integral part of it. And they show us your love. A love so terrible, so powerful, so absolute, so gripping, that it kind of frightens us, frankly. To be loved by a God that's absolute. Like the Scripture said, it is a terrible thing to fall into the arms of God. Very frightening. Until we know You. And once we know You and who You are, we can join Rahab and say, I want a part of that. I know what I was. But I know who God is. And she became part of the line who gave us the Son in human form. God in human form. (laughs) Who'd have ever thought it? Amazing story. We know one day that son who died and rose again and ascended to heaven will return. He promised he would return. Lord, we don't know if that day is today or a thousand years from now. But we want other people to be there with us when it happens. Help us, Lord, to somehow tell this story, skeletons and all, to people so that they can understand the love of God. Thank you, Father. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.